All right, well, we are going to continue our study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So turn in your Bibles to chapter 5. As you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we finished a very important section on the day of the Lord. We looked at uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and particularly the, the last time we were in 1 Thessalonians, we looked at verses 9 to 11 of chapter 5. And now we're going to switch into a new section in 1 Thessalonians and imperatives that we're going to draw from this. And in particular, this morning, we're going to just start into that next section and look at uh, verses 12 to 15. We're not even going to get through that. I know that. Uh, So it's just part one of these responsibilities that we're going to see in these verses. So turn there to chapter 5, and beginning in verse 12. And just as a reminder of where we're at, it's always good whenever you transition from one section to the next, just to have a reminder of... of, uh, what we're looking at, and as I've mentioned many times already, chapter 4, verse 1 really begins a, a critical section in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, it really is the, the, the reason for Paul's writing in a very practical sense. Timothy brought back a report from Thessalonica about how the church was doing. Paul was so thrilled to hear of their stability and, and their love that uh, were lacking in the Thessalonian church. Remember, Paul was forced to leave before he had been able to teach all that he had wanted to. He was driven out of the city, forced to leave, and unable to return. And, and so he, he's concerned for the Thessalonians and, and, and their understanding of the Christian life. Timothy brings back a report and says, yes, indeed, there are some things still lacking. And so, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul begins to deal with these different issues that were lacking. And we've gone through a lot of this already. We've seen that he, in, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, focuses on, on God-pleasing conduct. God-pleasing conduct in those first 12 verses of chapter 4. And, and then he moves to deal with a, uh, a section there in chapter 4, verse 13 to 18, dealing with those who were worried and anxious, discouraged about the that had occurred among the, the congregants, we don't know exactly why that was taking place, but members of the church had died in the previous several months. And so there were those who were worried about the state of those who had died in Christ that they may not share in, in God's future eschatological promises. And so Paul deals with them in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, in the dead in Christ. And that's where we have that rich, clear teaching on the rapture. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, he deals with those who had concerns about the day of the Lord. They knew the day of the Lord was a day of wrath, and they were concerned that perhaps they would somehow miss something and end up in that period of cataclysmic devastation as the Lord would bring judgment on this earth. They were anxious as well, worried. And so in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, Paul reminds what is lacking. He enforces their faith. And, and brings them to a, a clear understanding that the day of the Lord is not for those who are in Christ. Well, now in chapter 5, verses 12 to 22, he, he, he now draws this letter to a close with, with a series of exhortations related to church life, related to life in the body. In many ways, this is kind of like a household code, a household set of rules, as Paul deals with sundry issues that Timothy had reported on and and now seeks to provide some final closing 
imperatives, commands, exhortations as to how life should look in the, in the church, how it should look in that, that uh, Thessalonian congregation. And that's where we're going to be for the next several weeks. There's really four subsections here. Now, we're just going to look at the first and the second this morning, and that's dealt with in verses 12 to 13. These are important responsibilities. Then in verses 14 and 15, he's going to deal with responsibilities within the church at large, between one another, as, as the church uh, considers its responsibilities to one another and fulfills those one another's in, in everyday church life. That's verses 14 and 15. Then in verses 16, 17, and 18, Paul's going to deal with church life as well, but as it relates more specifically to one's relationship to God and how worship is to look. And we know some of those verses there about prayer and thanksgiving. We're going to look at those in a a couple of weeks. And then finally, a very interesting section, verses 19, 20, 21, 22, as as Paul deals with our relationship to prophecy. And uh, that always elicits a lot of interest. What does Paul mean by this testing of prophecy and so on and so forth? That is nation of verses 12 to, to 22 of chapter 5. Paul brings this letter to a close. And, and, and it's interesting to note that almost every clause now that we're going to study from 12 to 22, verse 12 to 22, almost every single clause is a command, an imperative. In fact, in these few verses, Paul is going to give 15 imperatives, 15 exhortations, and 12 of those, 12 of the 15, are actually made up just of very short statements. There's not a lot of extra wording that is, that is given with those. Uh, Paul and the Thessalonians, they knew implicitly what these things were about. Paul was dealing with specific situations. As we're going to see, we don't know exactly why some of these commands were given. We do know that they're authoritative and they're for us, but the exact reasons in that Thessalonian congregation, we just don't know. Paul doesn't tell but he gives these, these staccato commands. And at the head of the list, as we're going to see this morning, there are exhortations that are related to essential church relationships, essential church relationships, how relationships in the church are to look. Now let's look at these first, these first verses, 12 to 15, as Paul deals with the relationship to leaders and the relationship also within the congregation. We're going to get into and through most of this this morning, but not all of it the final command that's given there with respect to repaying evil for evil. I'm going to read through this in just a minute. I'll just let you know. Verse 15, I'm actually going to treat separately next Sunday because it has to do with a very important issue today. Our culture is so obsessed with retribution today. And so Paul teaches here and what other scriptures teach on the concept of responding to evil because that is so very, very much on... on, uh, uh, on the surface of, of our culture today. We'll get from verses 12 to 14, I hope, this, this morning. Let's read this. Paul says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, 
help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that, which is good for one another and for all. We're going to see the responsibilities of church members to leaders. Church members to leaders. It's a little bit uncomfortable for me to preach through this, but I'm going to try my best just to keep it what the text says. Rodney sent a whole lot of things he wants me to say. I've sifted through some of that. We'll get to some of that, and you can consider whether that's you know appropriate or not. But uh, we are going to look at, at the responsibility of church members to leaders in verses 12 and 13. And then in verses 14 and 15, we're going to look at the responsibilities of church members to each other. How does, how does local church ministry look with the one another's? How was it to look there in Thessalonica, and what can we draw from that as to how it is to look today? We're going to see in the first point here three exhortations, and in the second one, we're going to see fully the responsibilities of church members to leaders, verses 12 and 13. Paul begins with uh, this introduction to this section. He says, but we request of you. That word but in, in introduces a, a transition now from what he has been discussing in the previous section, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. That is a very distinct unit. He's talking there about the day of the Lord. And, and now he transitions to this, this new section, and he says, we request... We request. The, the verb is interesting. It's, it's a very friendly verb. It's, it's a kind appeal. It, it indicates or it describes the kind of appeal that, that, that a friend would make of another friend. And so it's interesting to note that as Paul begins this section of household rules, how life is to look in the, these exhortations with a gentle, a gentle prodding. Not harsh, but gentle. Not heavy-handed, not demanding, but urging. And we see this, again, as an example of Paul's pastoral love. He is a, he's a pastor, and he loves this church as he does all of the, the churches that he had been involved in. And whenever he could, he would always use the power of encouragement before he'd he draw out the, the power of discipline. He, he recognized that, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that there is a special power that is there with gentle, pleading, urging exhortations rather than demands and requirements. His brethren there indicates that he's appealing to them as spiritual siblings. He doesn't call them children here. He, he will call his, his, his people children from time to time, but usually that is, that is either within a context of, of extreme emotion and intimacy as he, as he relates to them as a parent does the child, or sometimes he'll refer to, to his converts as children when he needs to discipline them. But here he refers to them as brothers. They are spiritual siblings. And this was amazing. Paul, remember, was... Uh, was ethnically, he was a Jew. And the Jews would never refer to the Gentiles as brothers. That was unheard of. They would only refer to themselves, and very strictly so, as as brothers. But here's an indication of the power of the gospel, how it has united 
Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, male and female, into one spiritual siblings. But also note here that as he addresses them, it indicates here that, that he's not looking at a specific category within the church. Now, he is going to refer to the leaders in just a moment, but he here is addressing the entire congregation. This is not just addressed to a few. This is not just addressed to the mature. This is addressed to the entire, entire Thessalonian congregation. The instructions that follow are for everyone in the body. And, and, and so what does he exhort here? What does he request of them? First of all, here's the first responsibility with respect to leadership. He says, appreciate your leaders. Appreciate your leaders. We, we look at verses 12b now to 13a. Let me read that entire section. We're going to see the, the, uh, the, these first of you, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. When you look at those words in, in, in the second half of verse 12 and the first half of verse 13, you notice that there are two primary exhortations or, or, or structures here, each one beginning with that. We're going to look at the first one. His first request is this, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction. It, it, he, he, he wants them first to appreciate. And this verb is interesting. His use of the verb appreciate actually means to know, and it's, it's caused quite a bit of discussion among, uh, among scholars. Why does Paul use this verse many, many times in the New Testament? And scholars have basically said, look, there's, there's really a special category for this usage right here. And, and perhaps another example that is debatable in 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul probably uses this, this verb in the same way there, the verb to know. But here the idea isn't just knowing, know your leaders, know who they are. It's, it's not that, but it's about acknowledgement. Not knowledge, but acknowledgement. That's the emphasis of this of this verb here in this context. Another way to, to define this verb is, is this, to, to recognize merit. To recognize merit. You see, there's, there is the human tendency, and, and it doesn't just go away at, at conversion. There is this human tendency to, to, to not recognize the merit of leadership, to not recognize the validity of, of leadership. They don't have a position, and just to live life in kind of like this anarchist sense. We just do our own thing. But Paul here says, as he, as he focuses here on essential church responsibilities, he, he gives this charge to the congregation that they must recognize the merit of their leaders. And the way in which he expresses this verb, this command, indicates that this is not just a once-in-a-while practice or, or just something that they would do maybe as they would join the church. This is something that is to be ongoing. It's a continual practice that is to characterize these Thessalonians, a continual recognizing of merit, a continual acknowledgement, a, a continual respect. Now, what's interesting is the leaders... 
he doesn't use the titles. He, he could say, appreciate your pastors, appreciate your overseers, appreciate your, your elders, your teachers. He doesn't use the titles here, and, and that's intentional. Paul is driving to the, the whole motivation as to why these men were to be appreciated. He, he focuses instead on their function. He doesn't use titles here. He uses function, and he's going to describe these leaders in three ways, according to three functions. Notice the first one. He says, number one, appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Those who diligently labor among you. This is Paul's picture of the average pastor word. It's actually one word in the original. The word refers to a working to the point of exhaustion. It's not just work in the neutral kind of sense. You know, we all are familiar with work. It's just part of our lives. But this is the kind of work that goes beyond the, the, the ordinary. This is working to the point of exhaustion. Now, Paul uses this term elsewhere. Even if we go back to chapter 2, verse 9, he uses the same term to describe how he worked with his hands in his trade. That Paul was a, a leather worker, and, and he was very concerned about not putting any burden on any new converts. He wouldn't charge anything for the gospel ministry. It was free. Nothing whatsoever is, is required in, in clothing and have a roof over his head and things of that nature. And so he would work night and day with his hands. And he would often use this verb to refer to that kind of labor. As a, a, a tradesman, as an artisan, as a leather worker, it, was, it would have been hard work cutting and sewing and carrying the leather and whatnot all. And his hands would have been calloused. And, as, and in order to be able to fit in the preaching of the gospel and the discipleship of, of new converts, and, and also at the same time to support himself, he would have been putting in very, very long hours. And Paul says, that's, that's what was, my life was. But here he uses it to refer to the ministry. He uses it to refer to the ministry. And a, a good example of this with respect to the ministry is found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 to 29. Here we find the same verb right at the end of, of that, that section. Notice the gospel ministry. This is what it's all about, and this is how it's done. He says this, We proclaim him, referring to Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor. There's the same verb as we see in chapter 5, verse 12. For this purpose I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. And if you wonder, okay, what, what does labor in the ministry look like for a faithful shepherd, for a man like Paul and those in Paul's line, he describes it in this, in this very section. It's, it, it's the proclamation. It's the admonishment, the correction. It's the instruction. It's the, the teaching and it's the presenting every man, every individual, striving to present them complete in Christ. That's the kind of labor that a shepherd is involved in. And it's, 
and it's work, it's, it's tiring work, Paul says, it's exhausting work. He's going to use the same verb in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy 5 verse 17. He's, he's going to refer to elders who work especially hard. Same idea, labor to the point of exhaustion. Labor to the point of exhaustion. And notice, he, he says this, those who diligently labor among you. Not those who diligently labor in, in some isolated place for their own good. And not those who diligently labor for their own platform. It's those who diligently labor among the people. For, secondly, and this refers to the same group of people, but he describes them with a different function here. He says, and, and appreciate those who have charge over you in the Lord. Again, this, this verb is, is an interesting one. Paul uses it unusually here, a, a different verb, to have charge over. He, he could use it to refer to the exercise of a, a position of leadership. It's, it's used that way elsewhere in Paul's writing to refer to those who, who lead. It's a classic leadership term. But the term is also used to refer to those who give care. Those who, who have a responsibility to, to, to give care. And, a, and an example of this is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 to 5, where Paul describes a candidate for eldership. And he says in that context that a candidate for this, he has to be marked by a certain quality as to how he conducts himself in the home. And he says this, the candidate must be one who manages. There's the same verb. One who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And then Paul makes this side comment, but if a man does not know how to manage, there's the verb again, his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? This, this idea of, of management really combines the idea of both authority and care. So we could call responsible leadership. Not, not just the, the use of authority, but the use of authority for the purpose of care. And we all know what that looks like when it's done right and be in ministering to people. You see, authority isn't a sinful thing. Certainly sin corrupts authority, but God himself is omnipotent. He is a God of power, authority, and order. And he has given to mankind all kinds of different kinds of authority, delegated authority, and God has given it within the church as well. But this kind of authority that is in the church is different from the authority in the world. This is a, a kind of authority in the church that is designed for the purpose of care, for the purpose of, uh, of, of concern. Just as a father must be concerned about the well-being of his children and use his authority to protect them and to provide for them, to sacrifice for them so that they would, they would grow up to, to be responsible adults and experience the blessings of God. So also position is not defined by themselves or by their own titles. It is defined by the Lord himself. It's that sphere. Thirdly, he says, respect or esteem or, 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 or appreciate 
Number three, those who give you instruction. Those who give you instruction. And the verb here literally means to put in mind. To put in mind. And so it's, it's the idea of putting knowledge into someone else's mind. The, the idea of instruction. But this verb for instruction, which literally means put in mind, has also a, a, a more corrective notion. It's not the typical word for teaching. Didasco. It's a, it's a different uh, verb that's used here that has the idea of, of correcting what is also in the mind. We see Paul use this verb, for example, with respect to the Corinthians who needed much of this correction. Uh, they had a lot of things in their minds that had been put there, but not by Paul or by other ministers, but by the world. And so Paul has to over and over again, correct them. And he says this, for example, in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Or even in Colossians chapter 1, 28, we saw that already where Paul describes his own ministry and he says, we proclaim Christ admonishing every man. So it emphasizes here that idea of, of, of correction, of pointing out Areas that are, that are errant and bringing God's truth to bear in a, in a way of, of, of correction, of correcting thought and correcting pattern and attitude and correcting behavior. That, Paul says, is one of the functions of leadership in the church. And that is what is to receive respect and a, a, appreciation. One, one writer writes this as he looks back on those three functions, he he says this, those who should be recognized as leaders were those who did the work. What legitimized this leadership was not their status or social rank, as was commonly the case in both Greek and Roman society, but the labor they undertook among members of the congregation. Paul calls upon the church to appreciate, to acknowledge, But there's a second responsibility here related to the leaders, and it is that they esteem their leaders. Go back to this section, verses 12 to 13, give you instruction. And then we have this second exhortation, this main exhortation here, where he says, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The the verb here, to esteem, literally means to think. means to think. But the verb here isn't referring to thinking in general, but to thinking highly. A certain way of thinking is what Paul has in mind. And so the idea is to hold in high regard. To hold in high regard. And once again, as Paul writes this exhortation to the church that they must esteem their leaders, he expresses it in language that emphasizes an ongoing practice. It's not something that happens every so often or when it's easy, but it's something that is to mark the church as a whole, its entire life. And and notice how he describes in love because of their work. First of all, we have the measure of the esteem. The measure of the esteem. It is very highly, not superficially, but, but highly. In fact, Paul introduces this here to suggest that you know there was always even within that culture the 
understanding that you had to respect the authorities that were there in the culture, the, the civic authorities. But by using this, this terminology here, Paul says, but you know what? You know who is to be respected even more than the mayor, than, than, the, than the, the local centurion, uh, than the, the, the authorities in the city? It is to be the shepherds. That's the measure Moreover, he says, this esteem, this, this thinking highly is to be done in a certain manner. Bathed in love, not begrudgingly, but in love. And then thirdly, we have the motivation. Why is this esteem to be offered in such a way as a regular habit of life? Paul says, well, it's because of their work. That's why. It's because of their work, the motivation. It's, it's to have a purpose, uh, purpose to it, not without purpose. Reminds us of, of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where the writer of Hebrews expresses much the same sentiment when he says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. And here's the motivation. For they watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. What these words here in Hebrews 13, and that the leaders in the church have a, have a far greater responsibility in, in, in how they answer to the Lord. That how we as pastors and elders, and even as Bible study shepherds, even as deacons, that those who have various levels of responsibility and authority within the church will have to give a much stricter answer for their stewardship. And they will have to come to terms with that. They will answer before the Lord for that. And Paul says, as the writer of Hebrews says, recognize that. And because of the work that they have to do, esteem them in love. Well, there's a third exhortation. Not only does Paul say that the congregation, right at the end of verse 13, as Paul continues this discussion about leadership, he he says, live in peace with one another. Right at the end of verse 13. Notice it there. Live in peace with one another. On the one hand, that looks as if it, it could be just a reference to interpersonal relationships without respect to any kind of structure whatsoever. And yet, most commentators, and I think they're right, most commentators would say that where Paul places this exhortation right up close to these other ones related to to leadership and how Paul is going to describe interpersonal relationships in the church a little bit later, that it is best to see this exhortation here but living in peace as referring to the relationship that is to exist between leaders and, and the general membership of the church. He calls upon all the, the, the brothers and sisters in the congregation to, to, to enjoy and to cultivate peace between the, those who do those functions in the church and those who receive the benefit of those functions. Indeed, the work of the ministry is at times difficult. It's at times unpleasant. You think especially of that ministry of correction. It's unpleasant. And moreover, the leaders themselves are imperfect. 
There's still just men at best, and they're not glorified, they're, they're not perfect, and so as a result, they'll make mistakes, there'll be moments of, of ignorance, and sometimes moments of wrong applications and misunderstandings, and all of that could easily lead in the church, as it does in society, could very easily lead to strife. At Thessalonica, we don't know, but Paul says, Thessalonians, live at peace with one another. Live at peace. You see, peace is, is, a, is to be a top priority. God is a God of peace. If we look at, at, at this letter a little bit later on, in chapter 5, verse 23, Paul describes God as the God of peace. He's a God of order and, and tranquility. And that is to mark his people. In the very first verse of this letter, chapter 1, Paul wished peace to the congregation. Peace is, is this, this tranquility that comes as a result of having a life that has changed. The unbelieving life, the life that is unregenerate, the unconverted life is a life of chaos and strife. Anger regenerate is that he has come already to experience peace. And now the challenge is, is that that new creature in Christ is to spread peace. Peace is so very important. It was important for Paul. And so Paul says, pursue peace. There's going to be opportunities of the flesh when, or for the flesh, when something isn't quite understood and There'll be an opportunity to sow strife, misunderstanding. And, and, and Paul says it's one another, with one another. It, this is reciprocal. This goes both ways. There's the danger lurking on both sides all the time that, that strains could develop. And if they're not dealt with properly, they, they, will, they will continue to grow like gangrene and infect the congregation, infect the leadership, and, and, and lead to a divided church and dishonor to our Lord. Well, as I was thinking of applications on that section there, the necessary, the, the necessary responsibilities of church members to church leaders, it was, it was difficult for me to think of any. Like I said, Rodney sent me a whole bunch here. Um, I decided not to post them. You can ask him later. He'll, he'll have them ready to roll off his tongue. No, I know I speak for Rodney as well. You know, as I reflected on this, working on this last night especially, and just thinking of of you all and the wonderful joy that it is to serve in this group, there wasn't one thing that I would say, well, you need to do this better. Not at all. Just very profound thankfulness and gratitude for you all and and how you're practicing these things beyond what we deserve. Such a wonderful expression of, of Christ to us in leadership here. So I would just say this, keep on doing what you're doing. That's the application there. Paul moves on, though, and he now wants to instruct the Thessalonians on the responsibilities of church members to each other. Now he transitions in verse 14 to to speak to, to a, a, a new set of situations or circumstances 
within the church. He's dealt with the first one in verses 12 and 13 and has said, okay, Thessalonians, these are your responsibilities. This is essential church life as it relates to you and leadership. And now he changes in verses 14 to 15 to say, okay, now I want to I treat the issue of how you look upon each other, how you minister to each other as you practice the one another's, as you live. He says in verse 14, we urge you, brethren. Notice it's so very similar to what he just said in verse, at the beginning of verse 12. It's one of these uh, formulas that he uses to introduce a new minor section here, a subsection. He says, we urge you. Now, what's interesting here is that this one's a little bit stronger when he dealt with the responsibilities of the members to the congregation, he was very gentle. He, he was like a friend, reaching out gently to urge them. But now he's, he's taking a stronger sense of appeal here. And now it's, it's, a, it's a classic term that is used to describe how a father will exhort children. And, and so now he's using that sense as he, as he describes to the congregation, how they ought to be relating to each other within the body of Christ. But again, a a unique category within the church. He's addressing the entire congregation. And this is important, especially when we see the the exhortations that follow. And we're going to see several exhortations here that that, uh, grow out of this, several responsibilities of church members to each other. Four of them. Look at, first of all, the, the beginning of verse 14, he says, admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. This word, admonish, we've seen already. It was back in verse 12 to describe what, what uh, elders and pastors and teachers do as part of their function. They, they don't just instruct. They don't just pass on knowledge and information. But they also correct. It's the element of discipline there. But notice this. Not only are the pastors and elders to do this. Paul is calling upon the entire brotherhood kind of ministry. He says, admonish the unruly, correct the unruly. Now, the question is, who are these unruly ones? And uh, here we have some some good reasons to that the the unruly ones that Paul has in mind are specifically those that that Paul has already instructed if we go back to chapter 4 if you go back to chapter 4 remember that he says this in in verse 11 and 12 he says make it your ambition to lead a quiet life to attend to your own business And to work with your own hands, just as we have commanded you, so that you will behave properly. If we look at 2 Thessalonians, I won't turn there now. You could look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, and again verse 11. The word there in that context, as he does here. The same cognate word. It's, It's a rare term that Paul uses that's translated here as unruly. He talks about it in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, as the unruly life. In verse 7, as an undisciplined life. In verse 11, as an undisciplined life. It it, it refers to those who in that time were, they they were kind of like, you know, parasites, if you could put it that way. They wanted to take advantage of the generosity of the Philadelphia love of the church. They came into this church and all of a sudden realized, 
how nice people were and thought they could kick up their feet, sit back and have people bring them bread and they wouldn't have to go through the regular routine of work. And Paul had to, had to admit in 2 Thessalonians 3. And so when Paul uses the term here, he's saying to the entire congregation, you know what? This is not just for me. It's, it's not even just for the leaders to do. Brothers and sisters, he says, each of you, correct those who are stubborn. This is part of the one another's. This is a responsibility that the entire fellowship bears. This is not just something where this ministry is just limited and left to, to those with, with titles. No, this is a ministry that the entire congregation is to do. So when we, we see it here, and this is interesting, we're going to see a pattern develop here. First of all, when he says, admonish or correct the stubborn, the unruly, he's referring to that same group of people that he's already dealt with in this very letter. Chapter 5, encourage the discouraged. He says in the middle of verse 14, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. The verb for encourage there means to console or to cheer up. What's interesting is that this is a verb that was often used to describe what, what, what people would do to, to those who are mourning over the death of a loved one. In fact, you go back to John 11. The verb is used there to describe the consolation that was offered to Mary and Martha over the death of Lazarus. It's to console. And who is to be consoled by the congregation? The the. the People to be consoled are described as the faint-hearted. Literally, it means small-souled. Small-souled, those who are anxious, those who are discouraged. when When you see that, it should remind you of another section in this letter that we've already studied, right? Remember, when Paul deals with the next section after the unruly in chapter 4, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, he gets into the Next section of chapter 4, 13 to 18, those who are mourning over, the, uh, over those who had died in Christ. Paul, remember, even says, we should not mourn as those who have no hope. But those in the Thessalonian congregation, some were, were mourning. They were faint-hearted. They were worried. They were uncertain about the state of their, their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul encourages them there in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. But now, as as he wraps up this letter, he says, I'm going to pass the baton on to you. Thessalonians, now it's your job. Every one of you, as you look across the congregation, see see those who are discouraged, see those who are small of soul, and bring consolation. Cheer them up in the Lord. He also refers to another group. He says, support the frail. Support the frail. He says that at the end of verse 14 of chapter 5, he says, help the weak. The, word, the verb for help means to, to cling, to hold fast. It, it speaks of devotion. In fact, in Titus chapter 1, we, we read the same verb used when Paul says, you are to hold fast the faithful word. It speaks of devotion clinging to. And Paul says, congregants, members of the Thessalonian community, you are to hold fast the weak. 
the weak. Now, literally, the term can mean those who are physically sick. And some have even suggested that, well, there were a lot of sick people in the congregation. That's maybe why some of them were dying. And Paul is saying, you're to have this ministry to the physically ill. Well, certainly that would be included in this, but Paul's focusing in this entire context on on spiritual issues. So it's better to see this, this, this weakness as a spiritual weakness. It's pointing to spiritual frailty. And again, we can see how Paul himself did this previously in the letter. When he ministered to those in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, who were, who were weak because of their anxiety over the day of the Lord, they were worried that somehow they would fall into the day of the Lord or the day of the Lord would come upon them and there would be no escape. And so Paul, there in chapter 5, verse 1, dealt with the weak but now, the life in the body, this, this isn't just a, a ministry that is to be done by clergy and you have this separation of clergy and laity. The clergy does everything and is essentially the church and the laity is just kind of there to pay the bills. That's not what Paul's vision is for church life at all. In fact, as, as we look at this, we can see that really the only difference in, in terms of ministry between the leaders and the rest of the congregation is one of degree. It's one of degree, but everyone is involved in this kind of ministry. And then fourthly, he says, you are to endure them all. He says this as he closes verse 14. He says, be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. And I lost my uh, power right at that last point. (laughs) But at verse 14, he says, be patient with everyone. Undoubtedly, when, when you have this kind of ministry the support, that, that relationships can become frail, that there can be impatience on one side or the other. And Paul, in, in order to ensure that this be done in the right way, he says this summary, uh, this summary exhortation here is that in all of this, regardless of category, regardless of group, whether you're in the unruly, whether you're in the faint-hearted, whether you're in the weak, regardless, there is to be patience that is mixed in with all of this ministry. And this is so vital for the function of the church. Patience. These things don't get corrected or don't get applied easily and quickly. It takes time. In fact, that idea of patience that's used there has the idea of being slow to anger. And if we go back to Exodus chapter 6 and that, that wonderful declaration of the character of God, what do we read of God? Abounding in loving kindness and slow to anger. And so as ministry is done in, in the life of the church, this is, this is how it is to look. It is to look patience, with patience upon all these different activities. Well, as we wrap it up for today, just a final couple of exhortations. Number one, ministry is for the whole church. Ministry is for everyone in the body. Everyone who is defined as a a brother or sister in Christ. This ministry is, is for everyone. Secondly, as you reflect upon this Understand this, it's not one size fits all. 
Sometimes there can just be this kind of person the same way. Paul very clearly says different people in the congregation have different needs. And you need to know that. You can't respond the same way. You can't think, well, just because I'm a hammer, everything's a nail. Right? There has to be variations in in how you minister. And sometimes it's going to require from you some stern words to the unruly brother or sister. You are going to have to do that. You're going to have to use the authority of the word of God and you're going to have to get in their face and say, brother or sister, I love you, but this is unruliness. You're not in obedience to the word of God. And I want to admonish you in this. And other times, you'll have someone questioning their very salvation or wondering whether they'll make it to the Lord's presence or they may be mourning extremely over the loss of a loved one, response to the faint-hearted. You you need to encourage and console them. And then to those who are worried about other things in their lives, again, Paul says you need to, to be able to support them, be devoted to them. There will be many who will be, who will misunderstand certain aspects of doctrine and misapply them and not understand them and not connect the dots. And it may be easy for you to to make all these connections and you may look on them and and think, wow, you know, why don't they get this? I've had enough. But Paul says, you know what? You are to you're to be devoted to the weak. Come alongside them. Take hold of them. Carry them. And in all of this, Paul says, so be patient. So it's not one size fits all. As we close today and just dwell upon this, your own relationships here in the church, both with respect to leadership, but also with respect to one another. And hear the words of the living God through the pen of the Apostle Paul. These are for us. This describes real life in the body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such clear exhortations, so concrete. And as always, your word is is, is so living, so active, so capable of judging and dividing the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Speaks to us right where we're at. To to change us and remind us of, of where we need to be and where we need to be going. And at the same time, Father, we do want to thank you that so much of this already exists. And so like the Apostle Paul did with the Thessalonians, as as he thanked them for walking and pleasing you, so I want to as well. Thank you so much for this group, their love, their encouragement, how they minister to one another. And I pray that you would cause that to excel still more for the joy of many more people, and for the glory of your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.